Um, we ended up closing out Philippians, Philippians last week. Paul is literally sitting in a prison in Rome, and he's about to be released, uh, which allows him to go on. You, you, you hear about Paul's first, second, and third missionary journeys, which we've already covered in Acts. The, the, this whole process that we've gone through began, gosh, I think about five years ago. We started teaching the Gospels five years ago. It took us 92 some odd weeks to get through the Gospels. And then we jumped straight into Acts, and we've been doing Acts the last three years. I'm like on uh, week 160 of this Acts series, and just stopping through as he's done the letters. So we've chased Paul and all these missionary journeys, and now he's in Rome, and he's getting ready to be released to go on a fourth missionary journey, which you don't hear about much. So let me kind of like piece today before we get into First Timothy. I'm going to read a lot of things that happen. And I can do that because of two resources. One minor resource is Josephus uh, is a Jewish historian that is trusted and has been given uh, credibility. Uh, so there, there is a little bit of history there. But then the rest, we're basically pulling from the scriptures, the letters that Paul's written and things like that. We kind of piece together what all has happened. So let me take you on this little journey. First of all, Portius Festus, he is the, the Roman provincial leader of the whole Judean area. And he dies in office. This is around 63 AD. He's in charge. So, again, all this account right here, this part comes from Josephus. So Albinus is stated to replace Festus, and you don't care about these names. It's just another person's getting ready to come in and take the Roman provincial leader's place. But it takes at least five weeks, five weeks for word to get back to Rome from Jerusalem, Judea area, to hear that Festus has died. Then Albinus is going to be the next guy, but it takes five more weeks for him to get over to Jerusalem and get settled. So now you're talking ten weeks, almost three months, that have occurred without any Roman leadership there in Jerusalem. And so during that time, during that three months, Ananus, who's the high priest, decides to pull the, the Sanhedrin together. And he's fed up with James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, the step-brother of Jesus. And James is teaching about Jesus. And James also teaches the law, Jewish law. So now there's confusion, and he brings him before the Sanhedrin and accuses James of blaspheming the law. Big, big deal. He accuses him of blaspheming the law. And they take James to the pinnacle of the temple 
and they throw him off. And they begin to throw stones at him and they stone him to death. This is Jesus' half-brother for what he believed and what he taught. We would call that a martyr for Jesus. Since Jesus was held in high regard in Jerusalem as being the, really the Torah true Jew, the guy who taught the Torah, it was the fair-minded Jews in the city that were offended by his execution. Not only did he teach Jesus was the Messiah, but he truly taught the, the law. He taught, taught the Torah, the history of it all. So they were very much offended. And so when Albinus comes from Rome to take charge of the provincial area, Ananus was deposed as the high priest. He was no lie because he illegally put the Sanhedrin together and put James to death. All that occurred about the time that Paul's about to be released from Rome. So we're in 63 AD, and this section of Scripture takes us like the next seven years because obviously 70 AD is a big point in history. Uh, and we'll get to that eventually. So now let's jump to the other two characters, Peter and Silas. I'm going to show you uh, a map here real quick, the very first map. I can point it out here, but uh, obviously this is the Black Sea. Can you see over there, Black Sea? It's the same map, so you look at either one. Uh, but Peter and Silas, they've been spending tra- time traveling up in the northwest part. This area right here, is called uh, what we call today. Anybody know what country that is today? It's Turkey. This is modern-day Turkey. So they're at the northwest corner of modern-day Turkey, and it's right just underneath the Black Sea. Peter and Silas are doing ministry there. They're traveling around, uh, and they're mixing the gospel with what the Jews believe, So now you have both Jewish people becoming Gentile or becoming believers and you have Gentiles becoming believers. There's a mixed congregation that's happening in that area. And then Peter and Silas come to Rome where they join John Mark. So Rome obviously is in the boot right there. Uh, And they come and join John Mark. We read all that out of 1 Peter. That happened in First Peter. Now back to Paul. After spending two years of house arrest in Rome, Paul is released because there's really no lack of, there's a lack of evidence to convict him of his crimes. But he spent two years there just sitting out telling Roman soldiers about the gospel of Jesus Christ and writing letters and encouraging those that came to visit him. So now he's always talked about going to Spain. So he takes, he finally makes this long-awaited trip to Spain. We know that. He says in Romans 15 that I want to go to Spain. So let me flip to the other map. There, I, I, I wanted to track Paul, so I just pulled up a Google map and put all these pinpoints in. So literally, he's in Rome, and he goes over to Spain. This is Spain over here. I don't, it doesn't say if he went by sea or if he went by land, but he makes his way to Spain. There's no history 
of any Pauline origins in Spain. In other words, we're saying this, is that there was no ministry that was produced by Paul in Spain. We know that he went, but there's really no record of anything that happened there. So then the visit's brief. He leaves. Obviously, nothing's happening. And it says that he goes to the island of Crete. The island of Crete is right here, right there. Same thing. So does he go by sea? Does he go by land? We have no idea. But we know that he's moving. Paul travels southeast, and he meets Titus there on the island of Crete. Both men minister to the churches on the island. And they're undergoing this assault, assault of false teaching. And this is what we talk about here today. It happens here. Like the whole mixing of the old covenant with the new covenant. It's the same thing that was happening there. Like everything that we talk about here today is really going on here today. Nothing's really changed. It's kind of crazy. And so as a result, the churches are falling apart there on Crete. Paul leaves the island of Crete and he says, Titus, I want you to stay here and I want you to minister to the church here at Crete. I want you to select overseers. I want you to select elders, people that, are, that are gonna, you're going to trust and to help lead this church. So Paul travels northeast and he spends some, times, some time in Asia Minor, which is this area up here, which again is, is Turkey. He visits Miletus. Miletus is right here on the shore. A little bitty, little bitty uh, dot right there. Uh, where he begins preaching the gospel. Paul, of course, Paul's preaching the gospel wherever he goes, but he sends this message to Trophimus in Ephesus to meet him in Miletus to help with the work. He's asking, I need some help over here. So Trophimus joins him, and a church is planted right there in Miletus, a community who actually expresses Jesus Christ. Then Tromiphus gets sick. He says that. Paul says he gets sick. And Paul actually like leaves, but he heads off to Colossa. Colossa is like right here in the middle of Turkey. And in Colossa, he's visiting them just as he promised. He said in Philemon, verse 22, he's like, I'm going to Colossa to visit. So we know that he makes it there, but he leaves Trophimus uh, behind in Miletus. Uh, Timothy then sends word to Paul in Colossa that the Ephesian church is being ravaged by false teachers. So Paul then goes and meets Timothy in Ephesus, which is again right there just north of Miletus, uh, there on the coast. And uh, here Paul excommunicates two men from the church. Like, he boots them out. Their names, Hymenus and Alexander. These men are blaspheming and teaching that the resurrection of the believers has already passed. Like they believe that there's a physical resurrection of those who believed in Jesus Christ and they're like, that's already happened. It's already happened. And Paul's like saying, no, that can't possibly have happened. They're teaching false and so they either need to repent of their teaching 
or they need to get out. So Paul had no other choice since they wouldn't repent. There was actually a third guy, Philetus, who was teaching the same thing, and it doesn't say that he got excommunicated, so he possibly could have repented about his teaching. But these two got booted out of the church, and we know that from 1 Timothy 1 and 2 Timothy 2. Alexander, one of the guys, he was a metal worker, and he retaliated Paul with Paul by refuting his message and causing Paul great harm. Paul tells us that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. A brother in the church in Ephesus named Onesiphorus is of great help to Paul. Paul tells us this, 2 Timothy chapter 1. So now Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus and instructs him to combat the false teachers in the church who are ambitious to teach the law. Yet they know little bit about it. So remember, Paul has a disciple. His name is Timothy. Timothy has done everything he can with Paul to learn. And now Paul is like saying, okay, Timothy, I'm going to leave you in charge of these false teachers and the church and all that's going on here. You have to deal with all this. I mean, these men are teaching myths that pervert the creation account. These are the things that he's having to do, and they're debating over genealogies. We read all this out of 1 Timothy 1 and 2 Timothy 4. Now Paul heads off to Macedonia. He goes up here uh, to Macedonia, and he arrives and he visits the church in Philippi. The letter that he's just written previously while he was in Rome that we have just covered, he now gets to go to the church at Philippi as he planned to do that he was in prison. Well, there's still crisis that's happening back in Ephesus and Timothy's having to deal with it. He's like going, man, this may be more than I can deal with. Well, what's, what's so bad that's happening in Ephesus that Timothy, Timothy's having to deal with it? Remember in Acts chapter 20, that Paul warned the church in Ephesus about what was going to be happening, that people would come in and they would teach a false gospel, and they would be like wolves. He pretty much said, this is what's going to happen. Five years earlier, he forewarned them that this was happening. So the wolves have now appeared in Ephesus, and Timothy's having to deal with it. The heresy that they're teaching is kind of a Jewish proto-Gnosticism. It was all about knowledge. It was making them seem like they knew more than everybody else. In Ephesus, this form of heresy emerged, and here's what they were teaching. First of all, it's a sin to eat meat and to engage in marriage. This is what they're teaching. Timothy's like going, I don't know where that's in the scripture. That doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. The second thing that they're teaching is Eve is both a mediator and redeemer figure who pre-existed Adam. Eve came before Adam. Hang on tight here a second. Third, man came into existence because of a woman. And he was given enlightenment through the woman. This is what they're teaching. 
4. Since Eve was the first to take a bite from the tree of knowledge, you would say the first to take a bite from the apple, but they're saying the first one to take a bite from the tree of knowledge, she is the bearer of special spiritual knowledge. This is the Gnosticism that's coming out. Things are not much different today. Five, women are called to lead people to the illuminating Gnosis, which was represented by the tree of knowledge. You see the distortion, right? You see the distortion of the scripture. This is what they were doing, and they simply were taking Genesis, reading Genesis, and changing it. Redemption completely reversed the effects of the fall so that men are no longer subject to earthly authorities and women are no longer subject to their husband. Paul spends time, he's like, okay, if that's the issue, Timothy, he spends time in 1 Timothy chapter 2 refuting this. It's like, this is not what was intended. It's not the way that God designed it. Those in the Ephesian church who we're accepting this heresy, the leadership of women over men. Male teachers were the first to spread the false doctrine in Ephesus. That comes out of 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 2. But it finds fertile ground among the women in the church. You, real, you realize that this goes back to the fall in Genesis chapter 3 when it says, and it basically says the woman will rule will want to rule over the men. So all so if that's in Genesis chapter three, it's happening here in the New Testament. It's happening here today. That's the deal. And and listen to me. I'm not saying men are better than women. I did not say that. We are the same. The men and the women have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. There's no man in here that is more special than any woman in here. Do you hear me? I'm saying this clearly. But I believe God has designed for men to be the spiritual leader of the house. I'll say it. I'll say it. The men were designed to be the spiritual leaders of the house. There is like an authority figure. Well, what, does that, what does that mean? It means I need to know the spirit inside of me really, really well. And that's how I'm going to lead my house. If I lead it based upon my own selfish desires, I fail my house. I fail my house. If, if I lead it truly from the Spirit of God, listen, my house wants to follow me. My house wants to follow me. They do. They, they expect me to lead. They expect me to teach based upon what I know of the Spirit in me. This all got distorted then. It all gets distorted now. It does. You, and you sit here and you can break this down. You go, oh, well, Rusty doesn't believe that you know you, women can't teach. And that is so, I've never said that. There's been women that have been up here to teach before.
but I believe that I'm designed to be a spiritual leader in my house. So now, the church in Ephesus, they're struggling with this. The homes of the Ephesian women uh, provide a network by which this heresy was spreading. We call that network gossiping. (laughs) This is literally what's going on in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 5. Some of the women are teaching the heresy in the church meetings and they're just lording it over and dominating the men. They've also accepted this idea of the new woman from Rome. The concept of the new woman from Rome is they're dressing immodest and they're very exploitive in their ways, almost like they're prostitutes. And they are defying the other accepted norms regarding marriage and family. This is what's going on. There's also this problem with respect to how the widows are being cared for in the church. Watch this. This is back in those days. 40% of women between the ages of 40 and 50 are widows. 40% of women between, between ages 40 and 50 were widows. As a group, they compromised 30% of women in the ancient world. The Christian community at the time got together in Ephesus and decided that only women who were widows and 60 years older would be taken care of. Like, where does it say that in the scripture? It says the widows should be taken care of. So now, some of the widows have adopted the heresy and the others have family members who are able to care for them. Still, Some of the younger widows who decided not to remarry are acting promiscuously. I mean, it is messed up in Ephesus, and Paul left Timothy, his young disciple there, to deal with it. He's like, I I don't know what to do. Paul, come back. Come back. And then further, some of the riches... Uh, the rich brethren in the church are trusting in their riches and are influencing the poorer brethren to desire wealth. This is what you need to do. The church in Ephesus is in crisis, and Timothy writes to Paul about it. And upon hearing it, Paul really has a desire to return to Ephesus, but he can't, so he responds to Timothy by a letter. Let me get into this like real quick. First Timothy says Paul this is Paul writing an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of our God and Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope an apostle is one who is actually commissioned for a particular task and given the authority to carry out that task and they're ones that have been with Jesus and experienced the ministry of Jesus now Paul wasn't actually one of his disciples But if you remember the experience that he had on the road to Damascus and the time that he spent away, Jesus pretty much downloaded his whole ministry to Paul, and so therefore he was considered an apostle. And then he appointed Timothy as the leader of the churches. That's what an apostle does. He'll say, okay, you go lead this church. You take care of this. And he reminds the church that Timothy is under his leadership. He says to Timothy, my true son in the faith, Timothy's father was a Greek, but his mother was a Jew. Did you get that? 
His mother was a Jew, but his dad was a Greek, a Gentile. Timothy became a believer in Jesus in Lystra. And he began traveling with Paul to Macedonia, to Ephesus, to Corinth, to Asia Minor, all these different places. But he ended up in Ephesus to deal with this chaos. He says, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord because that's the only way you're getting through this, Timothy. The grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Some of you in this room are dealing with crisis right now. And let me tell you, that's the only way you're going to get through it. It's the only way you're going to get through it. He says, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. That was at least eight years after Paul's three-year stay in Ephesus this occurred. It says, so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. He's saying, Timothy, don't teach theology based upon man. Don't do it. Teach the doctrine that we've always taught. You know what I've taught you. We've spent time traveling around together. Stay true to what we've taught. These false teachers, they really have no good news for the lost sinners. They don't. Instead of producing love, purity, a good conscience, and sincere faith, the doctrines that they're teaching are causing division, hypocrisy, and all sorts of problems. They seek instead to lead Christians astray and, and capture them for their own agendas and their own, and own causes. You've heard me saying here, Levener has one agenda. One agenda in this room is Jesus. That's it. I get encouraged, asked, pleaded with to teach agendas in here. I, I don't need to teach agendas. Look, if we teach Jesus and we teach the Spirit is in you, that Spirit's going to teach you agendas. That Spirit's going to lead you in the right direction. We don't need anything other in this building than a community that comes under here under the banner of Jesus Christ. That's it. He says this, he continues on, he says, these promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. <laughs> where, where does a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith come from? Where does it come from? It has to come from Jesus. Because, look, I can have a good conscience, I can have a pure heart, but that sincere faith, we could all interpret that differently. We can interpret differently, but if Jesus is the one, Jesus is the one, then we're all on the same page. We're all on the same page. Hendrickson calls the love a personal delight in God a grateful outgoing of the entire personality to him. A deep yearning for the prosperity of his redeemed. 
an earnest desire for the temporal and eternal welfare of his creatures. Verse 6. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law. Although they don't understand what they're saying or what they're insisting on. But we know that the law is good provided one uses it legitimately. They were literally leading people out of the liberty of grace. Paul, Paul came along and said this, Hey, look, you're no longer under the law. You're free. You're free. You're free. You, you, you can go out and live your life with the Spirit of God inside of you and be free from the law. Like, you don't have to have the Ten Commandments memorized. You don't have to have the 613 laws in Leviticus memorized. You don't have to have the Sermon on the Mount memorized. You just have this Spirit of God that will lead you. Yet they're taking you back to the law and taking you away from the freedom. <laughs> we went to a church one time where they were baptizing people because they came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and they were celebrating this baptism. And then after it was all over, they had them raise their hand and say an oath to the church. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I promise to be here and do Bible studies and tithe. And it's like, are you kidding me? They just got free like 30 seconds ago. And you're having them take this oath to the church that they're going to give money back. It's the same thing. It's the same thing that was happening back then. The, 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 flesh, the flesh loves religious legalism because it, it helps them like regulate their lives and, and enable persons to appear holy. That's the church that I kind of like grew up in. If you act a certain way, if you act a certain way, then people will know that you're a Christian. Well, so act that way. Well, no, just walk by the Spirit and you will act that way. <laughs> Paul listed 14 kinds of people who were condemned by the law. In verse 9 he says this, We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinful, for the unholy and the irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and males who have sex with males. For, I didn't say that, the Bible said that. For slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. The lawful use of the law is to expose and restrain and convict the lawless. That's not you. That's not you. You're a holy, righteous, redeemed, forgiven person. That's who you are. You're not the lawless. The law was meant for those who don't understand Jesus, that don't have the Spirit of God. The law, it's not going to save lost sinners. It's not. 
It's only going to show them that they need a Savior. When a sinner believes in Jesus Christ, he's freed from the curse of the law. That's it. That's what it comes down to. And so Paul's like, Timothy, 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 you know this, you know this, trust this, teach this, you can say this. Yes, you're going to be opposed. Yes, they're going to come after you. Yes, they don't want you to tell this to people. But I'm telling you, stay with it. Stay with it. Let me tell you, leavener people, you're going to walk out of here and you may go to Asbury and you may hear a different story. You may turn on your radio and listen to the message and you may hear a different story in those songs. Understand what we're teaching right here. You're free. You're free. There's a spirit that lives inside of you. He's made you a brand new creation. That's it. Paul's like saying, stick with it. That's where I leave you. I'm going to leave you right there. Paul gets into his testimony. We'll we'll, we'll get into that next week. But Lord, I I pray that you, (laughs) we are revived. Because you died on the cross and you rose again and you sent your son, you, you sent your spirit to live inside of us. You sent your Holy Spirit to live inside of us. So Lord, thank you for revival. Thank you for making me a new creation. And Lord, we're in a battle with the world. We get it. May we stay focused. May we, may we understand your truth. May we hold to it. May you cause us to believe it even more today. And I trust you with my friends, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.